Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is Duray. Welcome to About to the People. In this episode, it is me, Sam, Kai, and DR, as usual, talking about the news that went underreported for the past week. And we also start with this conversation about the Derek Chauvin trial. We haven't uh, talked about it in depth uh, since the verdict, and we wanted to just reflect. Then I sit down with Larry Krasner, the subject of the new PBS documentary, Philly DA, who, as you know, is the DA in Philly. And he talks to us about what's going on in Philly. What does it mean to be a DA? Is that progressive? And what's next as he seeks re-election? Now, today is a special episode. If you've been a long-time listener, it's an even more special episode. If you are relatively new, it's special for you too, because this is our 200th episode. I cannot believe that it's been 200 episodes. I remember getting the call uh, from John Favreau way back in 2016, being like, you know, we're starting this thing. We're calling it Crooked. Would you like to be a part of it? And it was, I was like, what is a podcast? Uh, and we've come a long way since then. So I just wanted to do a set of shout outs to people who made this possible. So Jessica Cordova Kramer. I'll start with Jessica, our original EP who made it work. Jessica Cordova Kramer set us up, built the foundation, and now is doing her own thing in podcast world, but stayed with us all the way through and is still a big part of the spirit and presence of the pod. And to the initial contributors who have also gone to do other cool things, Brittany and Clint, um, help make it special as we built the first hundred episodes to contributors like Netta and then to Sam and Kaya and Diara who are the voices today helping us think through how we think about race and equity. What is the news that you didn't know and how do we think about what to do moving forward? And into the behind the scenes crew that you rarely ever hear. Uh, so Bill, Ivan, Jenny, Justine, Brock, the crew that really makes it all work. They edit it. They produce it. They make sure that there is a pod every Tuesday. Uh, so thank you to everybody who made this stream a reality. 200 episodes. My advice is stick with it. I remember when we were starting, it was rough. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but here we are. 200 down. Many more to go. Let's do it. Family, loved ones, welcome to the 200 hundredth episode woo, 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 woo. pod save woo, 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 woo. the people i'm diara ballinger you can find me on the twitter and the instagram at diara ballinger i'm samson yangway at samsway on twitter i'm kaya henderson at henderson kaya on twitter i'm direct at diary on twitter now i feel like every time i get on this microphone i say y'all it's been a busy week but this time it really has been <laughs> a busy wild <laughs> week the verdict came out what day? Tuesday? Wednesday. 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 So, you know, I think we caught wind that the jury had come to a verdict and then we had a couple hours where we had to kind of wait till everyone to get back into the courtroom. I, I think it's been my opinion all along that they were like he was going to get a guilty verdict on all counts. I think the officers that are coming behind him, I think there's going to be a mix. So they get off, they get guilty. I don't know. I, I'm not too sure of guilty verdicts of those folks. I will say in terms of the history 
of police killings and convictions and even prosecutions in Minneapolis, we've come a long way. I mean, I don't know if I said this before, but I probably have. But, you know, my family is from St. Paul and Minneapolis. I, I don't even think I have a family member that hasn't had an incident with the police that has ended either in a fatality or a very serious injury. And so um, I think it's been a long time coming for the Minneapolis Police Department to have a conviction. I mean, the fact that like the police chief and a whole bunch of other police officers got up there and said, that wasn't the way you're supposed to do it. Y'all get the F out of here. That's how all y'all been doing it. Okay. So I think partly it's like this conviction, yes, is a step in the right direction, but I think it's holding one individual accountable instead of the whole department accountable. I think what we're seeing in Brooklyn Center with Dante Wright, it runs completely parallel with Minneapolis Police Department. Brooklyn Center is a, is a suburb right outside of Minneapolis. And I, I would argue, I don't know this for sure, and I'm sure y'all that are on the Twitter will let me know, but I feel like Brooklyn Center at one point was part of Minneapolis. They're so closely intertwined in terms of feel in terms of lack of opportunity for black folks. I think Brooklyn Center over the years has gotten more black because so many black people have been displaced out of Minneapolis. It's kind of like PG County um, for y'all that are in the DMV area. But I, you know, I, I'm interested to hear like what everyone has to say about it. I think what I've been thinking about with this verdict and just in general, you know, Micaiah Bryant, like all the things that have happened this week is just, do our kids and brothers and sisters and aunties, as black folk, do we get more visibility? Are we more visible when we're dead? That's what I've been thinking about this week. And I feel like in order for us to, to kind of rise to this, and thinking about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and like to kind of almost have this angelic kind of aura, can we be alive for that? So I don't know, that's what I've been thinking about and trying to process in terms of how this feels and, you know, kind of in the processing of Audre Lorde, you know, getting to the feeling, getting to the language and getting to the action. But I, I can't really get out of the feels part quite yet. I'm sure there are lots of opinions here, um, but I'll kick it over to the group to see what, what, what the feeling is. Yeah, I mean, you know, Diara, it's, it's this sort of juxtaposition between the, the verdict itself in this case, in George Floyd's murder, and then the broader issue of police violence, which continues. I mean, there were six people killed by the police within 24 hours of that verdict being announced. You know, we look at places like Minneapolis that have said that they are doing things differently now, but really when you look at the data, the amount of force police officers are using right now has actually gone up, not down, since they murdered George Floyd. It's so like the systemic, the structural issues remain. They're just as bad now as they were before. But then there is this case where, like, I was surprised. I was surprised that there was a guilty verdict um, on all counts. Because, I mean, even when you look at the polling data, uh, and polling data just came out today, which showed 46% of Republicans thought that that guilty verdict was the wrong verdict. 46% of Republicans, like half of them. And 25% of independents. So... You know, you're talking about a jury of 12 people selected from the population, all of whom have to agree to convict in each and every one of these cases. And, you know, if half of the Republicans, no matter what the facts of the case are, just will not vote to convict, then that makes it almost impossible for prosecutors to secure convictions in these cases. It's one of the reasons why we haven't seen many officers convicted and why this case was so surprising as sort of a 
almost an exception to that rule. And so I think that is what is so challenging about this is that while this case was sort of, a, it went the right way, um, we know that the structural factors remain. We know that there continue to be people killed by the police, on average three people every single day, and each and every one of those cases will remain within the system that makes it so difficult to hold officers accountable. I mean, Sam, that is absolutely right. Shocked, frankly, with the verdict. Hopeful, of course, that people would believe what they saw on, you know, the video, which showed us exactly what happened. But if you look at the data, if you look at the history, this was not how it was supposed to turn out. In my best, like, hope, I thought not guilty on all accounts, guilty maybe on one count. And when... When they announced the first guilty verdict, I was shocked, like literally stunned. I was like, whoa. And then the second and then the third. And so totally surprised because history has told us that this was not likely to happen. Shout out, kudos, whatever, to the jurors, to everybody who made this verdict possible. And you know, if I just, as a plain old lay person, feel what has happened since Wednesday, not just Micaiah, I mean, there have been a number of police killings in the last week alone that feel like, you know, at a time where you would think that police might be a little more careful or a little more circumspect or a little slower to shoot. In fact, it feels the exact opposite. And so, I mean, I feel two things. On the one hand, I feel like, well, okay, people needed to hold somebody accountable for all of this stuff. And so Mr. Chauvin is the example. Yet and still, it's an example that doesn't seem to matter to the rest of the rank and file because there have been a number of police killings ever since. And so in the like 30 seconds of relief that I had that that in fact, George Floyd's life was deemed consequential, that it felt like somebody needed to be responsible for this. It was all, it has all been whisked away with all of the things that have happened since then. So I did, uh, I thought he was going to get convicted. Yeah, I anticipated this outcome. When I saw the police chief get up there, I was like, they got it. Like it was the police chief get on the stand. Come on. He, He was like, I need a conviction so these people will leave me alone. Like, that was what I read. That I was like, you know, when the police chief <laughs> get on the stand. So, you know, my a couple of things come to mind. One is that no one verdict changes the demands, right? Mm-hmm. We need something better. This don't work, right? That's like, we know it. That's real. The second thing is, you know, we've been here before. So, you know, Sam and I had a lot of interviews this past week. We're like, you know, I'm sure they asked you, Sam, because they certainly asked me. They're like, what's different about this moment? And you're like, I don't know. It feels feels like I've been here before. <laughs> and I think that if there's any if there's any learning I have is how much and Sam, this goes to your news today, so I won't get in front of it, but how much we are beholden to the media. Like the media completely shapes everybody's sense of like the urgency around this or like the sense of pervasiveness. So like we, we you know, Micaiah's killing became a national story, but the police have killed over 320 people. People know three stories, and that's not because we don't have the data that they got killed. It's not because they got killed in the shadows. There might be a video, but, like, do we know it happened? Absolutely. Was it national news? No. Because other things, like, somebody gets to decide what is a national conversation and what's not a national conversation. And that's actually one of the things that I take away from this moment is that the deja vu feeling 
I think in the end actually helps the status quo because we like people like this is going to be the moment that changes and then it doesn't like nothing magically changes and then we sort of just go back into the cycle. The third thing is that when we look at the structural things that have to change, that is what I hope that the larger, I mean, that is all the work that we do as organizers, but I hope that that is like what we figure out how to tell stories about because I'll tell you, not only private prisons, which we talked about, which is a small fraction of people incarcerated, but uh, Sam and me, Sam and somebody else on our team had a conversation with uh, the federal government the other day where it was like, not totally clear they understood what qualified immunity was. And you're like, okay, Yikes. everybody's talking about qualified immunity. And it's like, I don't even think people really, I just saw a legislator who I really like did an interview and like, I'm not really convinced they understand what qualified immunity is either, right? I don't even know if these senators know know what qualified immunity is and they're citing qualified immunity as like the reason why Republicans have not supported the Justice and Policing Act. It's because of qualified immunity and they think that somehow ending qualified immunity is going to result in officers having to pay more, which is not the case. And now Tim Scott is saying, He's like, okay, as long as officers don't have to pay, then they might support it, which was always what would have happened if you ended qualified immunity because the officers are indemnified anyway by the city. So literally, like, legislation, federal legislation on this has been obstructed by, like, misinformation and a lack of understanding of, like, the basics around what qualified immunity actually does, which is wild. The short version is that qualified immunity is civil, not criminal. That's, like, the big takeaway, that the end of qualified immunity will allow people to sue police departments. Uh, for the actions of officers. But like, yeah, I don't know. So that's what, I, this feels very deja vu-ish to me. And it feels, um, and I worry about that. I do think that there's like more focus on it. And I think that people are more politically engaged. So that's, that is a good thing. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm sure you all felt this too, but the number of people justifying Micaiah's killing has blown my mind. Bananas. We had a call with a reporter who literally was like, well, what were the police supposed to do? And I'm like, I'm on the, it was me, Sam, and somebody else. And the, me and the other person were, um, we were teachers. And I'm like, I've seen teachers diffuse the wildest situations with no weapons, no nothing. And have like kids, everybody's walked away alive, right? And you, you are able to diffuse situations with people who have real guns, guns, right? Active shooters. And you find a way to bring them in without killing them or shooting them or whatever. And you take them to Burger King and all of these things. You're able to bring them in, but you couldn't bring in this young African-American woman who called you for protection. Are you kidding me? Don't even get me started. Oh my God. And then when you watch the video, He's really close to her when he shoots her. I mean, this is not, he's not like, he's not running to save somebody's life because like she is actively stabbing somebody in the neck. That's not true. Like that is the narrative that they'd have you believe. He's close enough to her that I, I will never forget. I broke up a fight um, of some kids. I just sat on them. I like got in the middle of them and had to sit on one of them to like, because I knew they would freak out when my butt was on their body. So she's <laughs> like, get off me. I'm like, you're right. It's whatever, whatever's going to get this fight to stop. But like you were close enough to do a lot of things. But not shoot the baby. And not shoot the But girl. not shoot her. Whew. So that made huh. me, I just, I don't know. Like seeing people on our side defend her killing really broke my heart. Yeah, it was wild. I was on a panel this past week with, with black law enforcement, right? And they were all defending the officers for killing her. And I just couldn't, they were like, oh yeah, that's clearly, you know, imminent threat, justifiable shooting, like using all this language. And I'm just like, wow, like you realize how far removed this is in terms of expectation from how policing works it, pretty much everywhere else in the world. 
So like, it's not that people don't have knives or sharp objects in Japan uh, or they don't have knives or sharp objects in Germany. Like people all across the world have access to these things. There are fights, there are brawls. The police are intervening in those situations in ways that don't kill people routinely, millions of times over the course of a year. And you're telling me in the US that a 16 year old girl, you weren't able to handle that situation in a way without killing her? Like that is is wild to me. And to see the police sort of have these low expectations or so willing to dismiss people in these situations that would be just unreal anywhere else in the world if it were to happen um, is wild to me and sad. What this also made me question is this whole shoot to kill thing, right? Like why are our police trained to use deadly force and not to shoot to stop or to shoot to maim or to shoot to, you know, whatever. All of the responses that I've gotten when I've heard, you know, why are, why are police shooting to kill people? That's how they're trained, da 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 whatever, whatever. But it doesn't have to be that way, does it? Like, it really why doesn't. do we have to train police to shoot to kill when in fact, if you need to stop the situation from happening, there are multiple ways to do that. And you seem to find ways, I'm just going to say it again, you seem to find ways to diffuse the situation and stop things when the perpetrator is white and male and young, even if they've shot up a whole church or a whole group of people or whatever the case may be, but you can't figure out how to do that for young black people or for black people or for colorful people or for... 13-year-old Latino boys in Chicago. Like, really? Tell me, Sam DeRay. Like, this is your thing. I'm an educator. Like, I, I don't understand why this has to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. And that's the thing is the more you sort of learn how policing works in the U.S. and how that compares to so many other places around the world, the more you learn that these things are trained into police officers. And that's an intentional strategy. So this whole idea around shooting to kill is a philosophy that you shoot center mass in order because center mass is supposed to be the area around the person's body that sort of takes up the most space, is the easiest to hit. As like a strategy, the police would say to deal with the threat and immobilize the threat. In practice, that means you are shooting to kill, right? And you're shooting as many shots as you can into the part of the body that will kill the person. Now, it turns out that there are countries that train police differently. So you could see this in Spain. Uh, there are some places in Scandinavia as well that train the police to shoot at the extremities instead, which is something that like, you know, if you say that, people are like, you're crazy. There's no way that can't happen. That's wild. Actually, like that is actually how they train police officers yeah, in other countries stop, stop that have far lower rates of killings by police. So again, you know, these things aren't that wild or out there. They're happening in other places. Uh, and the U.S. has chosen to adopt a different path that results in people getting killed. I think the only other thing I'd add, Kai, and I think you're right, is somebody who, like, you know that something is better than what we got, right? And I think that what the police have done a very good job of doing is that the police have sort of made it so anybody who's not an officer who makes a demand of policing must be an idiot that doesn't care about community that is okay with crime like that's sort of the that's the setup yeah. so the moment that you're like you should not shoot to kill but have you ever had to be in a like that's what they do yeah we had to make split second decisions have you ever had like and it's like you think about that 
this is the only profession. When doctors are killing people in hospitals, I don't know a single thing about being a doctor, but I'm like, that is not okay. I'm like, I don't, don't go to that hospital. Shut it down. You shouldn't have died from the root canal. You know, like, <laughs> that is clear, right? I'm like, I don't know anything about being a dentist, but I know that the root canal shouldn't kill you, right? Yeah. In the sense, you think about teaching. You think about the expectations that people have who have never worked in a, haven't walked in a building, haven't Come been on. in a school. Come on. And now. they have... Expectations hey. that you are spending all day responding to. Yep. People who don't know what a standardized test is are like, we should get rid of it. And you have to take that idea at face value as a legitimate idea. You don't get yeah. to be like, you know what? You're not a testing expert. You just have to like deal with it. Yeah. The police, we will say basic things like, oh, I think choking people to death probably is a bad thing. And they're like, well, <laughs> have you ever, have you ever, and you're like, what? <laughs> How is this even just like a process that we think is okay? Like just the, just the framing of it is actually like a bad thing. And how it shows up in the media too, right? Like it's reinforced in the articles. That was the thing in this case, right? Where we literally have to say to people, stop listening to all of this and just believe what your eyes tell you, which is leaning on somebody's neck for 10 minutes is not okay. It's just not. We don't need, there is no qualification. There is no whatever, whatever. And so how do we bring that common sense I mean, you know, my grandma used to say all common sense ain't common, right? Everybody don't have it. But how do we bring this very practical approach to inquiry into the police thing without them sort of saying, you don't understand this is so difficult, this is so blah, blah, blah. I don't understand it, but I do understand that you don't have to kill people because you're able to exercise that when white people are the perpetrators, Okay, I'm going to stop saying that now. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Well, with, with that, y'all, let's move on. Let's move on to some news. My news is about the COVID vaccine and the case that um, millions, this comes out of New York Times, um, the report is that millions of people are skipping their second dose of the COVID vaccine. About 8% of the people who've been vaccinated or more than 5 million people have missed their second dose, according to the CDC. And there are a number of reasons. On the one hand, there are people who fear the side effects. Now, the reason, the whole entire reason why I chose this piece is because, yo, I took my second shot last week and I was down for the count. Let me explain something to you. Like I'm a, I'm a hearty girl, right? I'm, I'm thick. I'm robust, right? I'm not worried about it. I'm happy to get the vaccine so I could get back to my life and whatnot. Yo, that second shot, nearly took me out of this whole entire place. I was calling on sweet baby Jesus to come and take me. And I was literally like, yo, if COVID is anything like this, I don't want none of it. So took my second dose, was down for the count for about 36 hours. And then I rebounded. Praise God, he reigns supreme. But there are a number of people who fear the side effects and they are not getting their second shot. Um, another reason why people are not getting their second shot is because many people feel sufficiently protected with shot number one. Then there's the bad winter weather excuse in a number of places um, because there have been winter-like uh, weather conditions. They have not gone to get their second shot. Um, but there have also been providers who are running out of the supply or they have the wrong supply. So you've gotten Pfizer as your first shot, and then they give you an appointment at a place that only has Moderna for the second shot. In fact, this is a huge snafu that has happened at Walgreens, which is one of the biggest providers of vaccines across the country. Shipment issues, scheduling issues, 
difficulty for consumers navigating scheduling system and various providers and whatnot. And so literally there are people who are signing up for their second shot and just getting the wrong match in terms of, you know, the brand of shot that they've gotten. And at the beginning of this whole vaccination situation, um, the CDC has been worried about people returning for their second shot, right? This is a situation where you've got to not only get your first shot, but you got to come back three to four weeks to get your second shot. People have been worried about that. States have been calling, texting, sending letters to people and all kinds of things. Um, and there's all kinds of evidence that shows that when you only have the single shot, um, your immune system does not respond as robustly. Um, you're more susceptible to the variants of the virus that are coming along when you don't have the second shot. And nobody is sure exactly how long the single dose will last. People are not even sure how long the second dose will last. So if you don't get the second shot, you really are potentially unprotected. So the good news is that the overall follow-through rate is 92%. But when that 8% that is not getting the single shot is 5 million people, we got a, ourselves a little situation. Um, and then, you know, when America gets a cold, Black people get pneumonia. And so while the article doesn't say anything about who is disproportionately affected, uh, my prediction is that... It is poorer communities, more colorful communities that are not getting the full dosage of the vaccination. And so I wanted to just bring this to the pod to remind our folks to get their second shot. So my news is about shifts in public opinion. So, you know, obviously so much has happened uh, since the election of Barack Obama, like way, way back, 2008, 2009. Um, and, you know, you remember back then there was all of this talk about millennials, about young people changing the game and how there was a new coalition. And then, of course, we saw the midterms. We saw the Republicans come back in. We saw Donald Trump. We saw new waves of activism. What is interesting is new polling data has come out from Harvard's Kennedy School, which does these surveys of young people, ages 18 through 29. Every single year, they survey something like 2,500 young people. And what they're tracking that is interesting is an increase in political engagement. Um, so back in 2009, right after Obama was elected, 24% of people ages 18 through 29 said considered themselves to be politically active or engaged. Now, fast forward to where we are today, 36% of people between 18 to 29 say that they're politically active. And what was also interesting about this is young black people were the most politically active of any group. So 41% of young black people said that they were politically active. Uh, so this is an important shift, and I think we've all sort of lived through this and sort of seen this, seen, seen the protests, seen in our own lives engagement. Um, but it is interesting to see this continue to go up in, in the polls um, because it does track a consistent rise over time. And it implies that moving forward, um, that this coalition will continue to build, that we can continue to build power and continue to stay engaged, um, hopefully at even higher levels moving forward uh, to really get some of the transformational changes that I think we, we had hoped to see way back and have been fighting for ever since. This article was incredibly hopeful for me. In fact, oftentimes people ask me what gives me hope in this sort of 
pandemic-ish world. And what I always say is the young people give me hope. The young people have a very different take on the world. They live in a world where they are engaged with people who are different than they are. Their values seem to be far more universal and and seem to understand um, how um, inextricably bound we are, to borrow a phrase from Dr. King. And to me, this actually was not surprising at all. It wasn't surprising to me that young people are tolerant of different opinions. There were questions around how likely you are to be able to maintain a friendship with people who have differing opinions from you. You know, some of the most pronounced um, situations were with um, young people of color. And I think I, I can totally understand why that is the case. But I think what it reinforced to me is that the crux of, of real leadership is listening. It is about engaging the people who are your constituents and understanding where they are and co-creating solutions with them. And I think that the thing that this continues to point out for me is that the Republican Party is not listening to many people who are their own constituents. These young people live in a different world. They live in an integrated world. They live in a diverse world. They live in a world where... They might hold deep-seated conservative values, but they're also interacting with folks who are very different than they are, and that colors um, their perspective. And I think that one of the the things that we have to reckon with is the fact that whatever it was, that's not what it is. And so how are these longstanding institutions responding to the changing world that we live in? And I think that let me be very clear about the fact that, you know, I don't think the Dems have a lock on this at all. Um, and I think that the Dems need to think about this as well. Um, but it seems like they're doing slightly better than their Republican friends. I would chasten all parties to think differently about how they engage these young people, how they respond to their worldview and their values, because these people have a different idea about what the world is supposed to look like, and we need to be attentive to that. So my news is from the 19th. Um, what's happening with women-owned businesses during COVID? I read a lot of news in this realm, being a black woman business owner, because once you run a black-owned woman business, you realize you won't have no help in these streets, okay? So this article is just another indication of that. So essentially... Um, it talks about a couple of different individual stories. One is about Marcel Folk. She thought 2020 was going to be her year. She, you know, started this catering business and it got so good that she quit her full time job as a paralegal in D.C. Um, and then the shutdown happened. And so she says that, you know, I definitely lost faith almost every night thinking my business was going to close down for good. It was that feeling of drowning, and I don't know if I'm going to survive. We personally faced eviction three times. I thought of moving myself, my teenage daughter, and my grandmother into a storage unit. I thought we were going to be homeless. I read that because, and I'm, there's, there's more coming, but I think it's also important to understand that for a lot of these small women-owned businesses, small women-owned businesses of color, that it really is a fine line between keeping your head above water and then everything really falling apart, Right. Um, so the government signature small business pandemic aid package, which is, as we know it, is the Paycheck Protection Program, has allotted $796 billion 
billion in loan funding, but funds are dwindling. Only businesses that were generating revenue before the pandemic are eligible for this aid. A recent survey conducted by the National Association of Women Business Owners um, and Gusto, which is like a payroll and benefits platform, they found that many women-owned businesses have been left out, partly because the program does not help the large number of businesses that were started out of necessity as a result of the pandemic. Let me tell you something else it doesn't account for. When the United States of America, on May 25th, realized that there was 400 years of racism and oppression in this country, and all the corporations decided to do a Black Lives Matter post, and then black firms started to actually make money, and granted, all still processing that we're making money off of black people being killed and brutalized, if you made money in 2020, you're not eligible for PPP. So it's only for businesses that lost money. So if you made money or what this article points out so well, you actually had to start your business because all the other things you were working on kind of fell apart. The PPP program doesn't, doesn't help you there, right? It doesn't. And just think of how many women, and we've talked about this before, and how many women of color have left their jobs. A lot of them have started their own businesses, but they have no help in terms of lines of credit, lines of equity, um, and continuing their businesses. So again, PPP was created by Congress in March 2020 to help businesses offset losses and encourage them to retain employees. So sole proprietors, independent contractors, and self-employed people could access the program only through a set of rules that tied how much they got to whether the business was profitable. Businesses without employees, many cleaning services, Uber drivers, consultants, beauticians are overwhelmingly owned by women and people of color. About 90% of women-owned businesses have no employees other than the owner. So they don't get PPP. The American Rescue Plan, which passed in March 2020, provided an additional $7.25 billion to the program and extended its expiration date to the end of May. As of April 18th, nearly 10 million PPP loans have been approved with more than $762 billion dispersed. So Luke Pardue, an economist at Gusto, and he's a, a doctoral candidate, University of Maryland, said experts have long been sounding the alarm on the ways black and Latinx women and small business owners have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. But there's been less attention on the huge spike in new businesses this past year, particularly the e-commerce sector, said Pardue. Um, according to the survey that he authored, about 1,200 women business owners, nearly half of these businesses started during the pandemic, um, and they were started by women of color. They were more than twice as likely to have, to have started their businesses out of economic need. So, you know, small businesses have disproportionately received less federal support than other businesses, and women tend to receive the least amount of aid because government funding often relies on relationships with big banks and institutions, which have historically turned down loan requests from women of color at twice the rate as white men. Going back to Marcel Folk, I just wanted to read you a little bit more about what she said in this piece about her personal story. She said, we haven't had a grocery budget in months, talking about she and her daughter and her mother. My daughter and I had a game. How long can we go without grocery shopping? We would just eat what we have. I came across a channel that taught people how to eat like they did in the Great Depression. We survived off of potatoes, onions, hot dogs, and eggs for a long time. I think that part, that part is really hard for me to wrap my mind around. Folks are out here trying to create opportunity and livelihood for themselves and get next to little help, people are essentially going hungry without any type of federal aid 
around their businesses. Now, this really drives me crazy because the taxes I pay are wild. And in New York City, if you have a business, you pay, obviously, federal tax, New York state tax, New York City tax, and a self-employment tax. And yet, as a black woman-owned business, I don't qualify for a daggone thing. So I just bring this up because I think we're hearing about it, kind of, and reading about it, kind of, but I think one of the long-term effects of this pandemic will be what's happening with women, particularly black women, women of color, when it comes to entrepreneurship. Because so many of us have to do it out of need, and where is the support? So I'm going to leave it there. So my news as I close it up is about corrections. So we talk about police a lot, uh, but people often don't think about corrections officers. And uh, mine is from the New York Times. The headline is, in New York City jail system, guards often lie about excessive force. So a lot stuck out to me, but it says that in, so, you know, as a part of repeal 50A, there are all these police disciplinary records that are now public, but it wasn't just uh, sort of police as you think about them, like patrol officers, it was also corrections officers. So what it says is that uh, more than half of the officers in the New York City jail system who were disciplined over a 20-month period gave false, misleading, or incomplete accounts on official forms or in statements to investigators. And it goes on to talk about how pervasive like just lying is like the article is just online. So there's probably all other stuff happening, but they were just focused. The New York times was just looking at how many officers lie. It goes on to say about 56% of the more than 270 correction officers who were disciplined from January, 2019 to August, 2020, including a dozen supervisors lied, misled investigators or filed incomplete or inaccurate reports. And at least 17 officers made false statements in interviews with officials who were looking into allegations. So that is probably not surprising to us, but to see the numbers is important because, again, corrections officers normally get off the hook when people talk about sort of officers. Now, there are a couple of things that I just have to read. So one is that the president of the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, he says that, like, you know, he's sort of proud about most people don't get disciplined. And you're like, okay, shout out to the unions continuing to be the police unions. But then there's this incredible quote Let me just read this sentence. Joseph Russo, president of the union representing deputy wardens and assistant deputy wardens, acknowledged that jail staff members sometimes make misleading statements, but he said he thought some were honest mistakes. (laughs) He argued that officers and supervisors simply do not remember certain interactions or that memories are spotty because of the stress surrounding the events. Now, if that's not the wildest excuse for lying I have ever heard, if anybody who else was going through the criminal justice and was like, you know what, I committed perjury because I was stressed. I didn't remember whether I stole that thing or not. I was stressed. We would never accept that as like a legitimate response to a report in the New York Times. Like that is just a, that is fascinating to me. And uh, this is just a reminder that What's interesting about when people talk about moving beyond policing, the system does not work without the individual people. So when you start removing these, that's why when people are like, well, you know, dismissal and firing, all that stuff doesn't matter in the grand scheme. It's like, let me tell you, if we fired 100 correction officers tomorrow, these jails would struggle. It would be a struggle fest to like continue doing what they're doing. If we fired 200 people, 400 people, they'd have to, they just have to let people go. Like literally they wouldn't be able to, operate the way that they operate. And I do think part of this is like, 
you know, in the immediate, we can get rid of all these people right now and we should be demanding it and making that sort of stress the system uh, and using that as a justification to get people out. But just seeing like the hard numbers about how much people lie and knowing that like we're not even uncovering it. The people inside know, the wardens know, everybody knows the people lie and they're just like, well, it happens. Like that is unacceptable and I wanted to bring that here. So I thought that this was fascinating in part because of how rare it is to actually see information on the conduct of sheriff's deputies and like law enforcement in general in the context of jails. So we, it's hard enough to get access to information on misconduct that occurs outside of the, the context of jails. So incidents of police violence, use of force, complaints of various types of misconduct, like that information is spotty at best. You can get access to it in only in the states that like, have open records laws that allow that, 14 states. For jails, it is even more difficult to get access to any information about what's happening. So there's, obviously it's, it's much more difficult to get video evidence uh, or to have witnesses who are sort of uh, reporting the misconduct in the context of jails. Complaints are almost never upheld. It's almost no data to get access to the context of what's actually happening in those complaints. So uh, it is like a whole area where like, there are thousands of jails across the country. There are 3,000 counties. Each county sort of operates its own jail system. Uh, and it is this carceral system that is incredibly difficult uh, to get any insight into, to actually like, shine a lens and to see transparently what's going on. Uh, and I think that this investigation just sort of double clicks on what we already know to be true, which is that the police lie. And that those lies are not only documentable in the complaints and the accident data that we do get, um, but also there are a whole host of things that like we just don't know about that the police probably never reported or lied about in the first place. And like that's the piece that is that is really really hard about this, um, just getting access to the data in the first place, getting access to information when it's not reported uh, or where they delete the records or destroy them. So I think like, that's a huge area of the work. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. All right, people. We all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher. And you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Leigh Krasner is a subject of the new PBS documentary, Philly DA. It's an eight-part series about how Krasner has fought for criminal justice reform and how difficult the system is to fix from within. Today, he talks with me about his plans for re-election and what he hopes comes next. Let's go. Larry, thanks so much for joining us today on Pate of the People. 
I'm delighted to be here again. Again, I know we have so few uh, repeat guests, so it is always good to have one back. You are running for re-election, but can you talk about how has this been so far? You know, we had you on a while ago. What has it been like to go through this term? Like, what have you learned? Is it what you thought it'd be? Like, what's the lay of the land now that you've you've done it once? So the lay of the land, I think, is very interesting. I came to running for DA as an outsider. You know, I had been a civil rights and a criminal defense attorney with a pretty busy trial practice for 30 years. And my civil rights concentration was around lawsuits against police who were either illegally brutal or framed people or were corrupt in different ways. You know, all those years I was accumulating stories about people, uh, their lives, what happened to them, uh, judges who were more the perpetrator than the defendant on occasion. You know, I was accumulating all these stories and in many ways campaigned on the basis of talking about those things that I'd seen uh, and that I observed within the system and what I learned from it, you know, the principles that I thought we needed to pursue in order to make criminal justice better because I considered it an absolute mess. Um, You know, I got into office and it was more of a mess than I even thought. But what we have seen is that as long as you're able to view what is happening with progressive prosecution in terms of a social movement, in terms of American society moving at the level of culture. As long as you see it that way, I think it is very, very clear uh, that the people are on the right path, that the people support it. The, the issue will continue to be, as with all great social movements, that the institutions are not ready for change as quickly as the people are. What's your relationship to the police? I can only imagine that they don't love you. Uh, but what is it like when you are the person who ostensibly they want to like send people to jail and you're like, no, I'm not sending these people to jail. What, what is that like? So, you know, I think it's, it's very important to talk about what we mean when we say the police. Uh, you know, the truth is that Philly has a very large police force of active officers. It's about 6,500. They are increasingly diverse. There are more and more women. A lot of them have experienced, you know, addiction within their family around opioids and other things. And so some of them have a much more modern approach than what we come to associate with the police unions. In Philly, our police union is called the Fraternal Order of Police. You'll notice they almost never use the word union because they used to put down unions. That is their history. Uh, And they really never talk about sisters either. It's always about fraternities and brothers because, well, they were very sexist organizations for a long time. But there is a huge difference between uh, many of the modern and more modern thinking police officers in the city of Philadelphia and our commissioner on the one hand. And then on the other side, the people who tend to run police unions for a very simple reason, which is that these unions are controlled by their retired membership. Two-thirds of the voters in the Fraternal Order of Police in Philly are retired. They came up with a completely different demographic that was almost all male and white, that was almost all Republican, and that in Philly came out of what we know as the Rizzo era of policing. Uh, Frank Rizzo was a police commissioner who became the mayor, and he was absolutely dedicated to racism and brutality. There's no other way to put it. He was really our Confederate general, and only recently did we get rid of his statue. So when you have the voice of the past coming from the union, a lot of the times people think, well, that's all the police. No, it isn't. In fact, when I ran last time, I was endorsed by the Guardians, who are the African American Officers Association, while I was being railed against constantly by the Fraternal Order of Police, which has always had an all-white and all-conservative leadership. Make no mistake here, we're speaking of a leadership of the union that has endorsed Donald Trump twice in a city that hates Donald Trump. We're speaking of a leadership that is Republican uh, in a city where seven out of eight votes are Democratic. And we're speaking of a leadership that referred to Black Lives Matter as, quote, 
a pack of rabbit animals, unquote, that has advocated for the wearing of a Nazi tattoo by a Philadelphia police officer while he was in uniform and while it was visible. This is the same leadership of the FOP that uh, allowed and invited the Proud Boys to drink beers with them in an officer-only section of their clubhouse. So we are not actually talking about all police when we talk about that knuckle-dragging throwback leadership of the Fraternal Order of Police. Simply put, I don't get along with the leadership of the Fraternal Order of Police. I shouldn't. They need new leadership. Their members are are ill-served. My dad fought in World War II. You can fill out the rest of that sentence. I don't, you know, I'm not good with Nazis. So that's not going to happen. But we have a very, very different relationship with the commissioner with whom we collaborate uh, and get along in many instances, not all the time, and a very different relationship with a lot of the more modern thinking uh, police officers who are active. What are some of the things that you're proud of uh, that you've been able to accomplish? And then what do you want to do in the next go round? Well, you know, we made a bunch of promises. We kept a bunch of those promises. And it has been things like we're going to go after mass incarceration in the most incarcerated of the 10 biggest cities. We did. We actually cut the future years of incarceration being pushed out by the court system in half at least before the pandemic shut down the courts completely. We did the same thing with mass supervision. We had, again, the most over-supervised city in terms of probation and parole of the big cities in the United States. And we have cut the future years of probation and parole coming out of the Philly courts by about two-thirds. We are really proud of the fact that we exonerated 18 people, you know, who were lied against, cheated against, whose prosecutions were corrupt, and nearly all of whom I can say with certainty were completely innocent. Those people never would have been out if we hadn't been in here because the prior administrations viewed their role as a cover-up, and they were covering for themselves. Many of them were the actual prosecutors in those cases originally. The work of our Conviction Integrity Unit, which is a real unit and has a lot of personnel now, goes on, and we will see more of that in the future because we can't leave innocent people in jail. Um, So we're proud of that. We're also proud of how we've handled victims. We have uh, instituted a number of new programs that allow us to provide more services to victims of crime, especially homicides, to the survivors of those situations. And we view that as also being crime fighting because there's quite a bit of evidence that indicates when you don't address trauma among victims and survivors, uh, you are liable to see it come out later in different ways. You're liable to see victims or their relatives who engage in crime themselves. So we're very proud of all that. We've also protected immigrants in new ways, brand new unit to defend them broke a contract with ICE that was basically expediting deportations. We have a brand new unit, never existed to protect workers from crimes committed against them by their employers. And we have an unmatched record in Philly history for police accountability, for being willing to prosecute police officers who actually commit crimes on the job for those crimes. So we are, we're proud of all of that, but I have to tell you probably more than anything, we are proud of the culture change. We have brought our number one priority because, you know, I'm no, I know I'm not going to be here that long, has been to recruit and to bring in incredible talent from all over the country to the office. At this point, we have hired most of the lawyers in the office, and we hired them from top 20 law schools all over the country. We hired them from all six HBCU law schools that remain in the United States and from anyone else who would, who would come after us. But what it meant was we got some of the most talented people in the country, mission-driven people, people who were turning down a bunch more money because they really wanted to do this work of progressive prosecution. Uh, they are absolutely an A-team of future leaders, and they're also very, very diverse. We are looking at, very shortly, increasing by 100% the number of black attorneys in the office. We are looking very shortly uh, in a city that is 
very diverse at having attorneys of color who have increased from very low levels to approaching nearly half of the staff of attorneys. So, you know, we're, we're working it. We understand that culture change requires the right kind of people. It requires the right kind of modeling of equity inside the system. And that has meant to us making sure that we don't have discrimination and compensation. We don't have discrimination in who are the supervisors, that the right people are training. We've done all of that. And that has caused a sea change within our office. Now, what would you say? You brought it up. What would you say about this idea of progressive prosecution? Some people would say that that's a misnomer, that you actually can't have progressive prosecution, that prosecution is necessarily not progressive, that putting people behind bars is always just building the carceral state in some way. Uh, what would you say to those people? First of all, I respect them. An awful lot of arguments are just about the definition of a word. They really are. It's not that we're disagreeing on anything fundamental. Those folks agree that when you reduce jail population to the lowest level in Philadelphia since 1985, that's a good thing. They also agree that when what you are doing in the future is going to cause a drastic reduction in the number of people who are sitting in jail for non-serious offenses, that is a good thing. But we often see this conflict. In fact, it's something that I think is sort of central to the story of why it is I decided to run. We see this conflict between the prophetic voice you know, the ideologically pure voice of the activist. And I say that with great respect as somebody who represented activists for free for 25 years, because I thought what they were doing was important and they shouldn't get arrested for it. The prophetic voice, though, is not actually the same thing as the voice of the person who sits in the chair and now has to deal with the reality that there will be 100 to 130 arrests today, and that the lives of all of those victims and all of those defendants are extremely important, and that we have to do something right now with the system that we have. Here's the real choice, and I do think that they should consider this. The real choice is, if you're not going to sit in that chair, I know who will. It's Bill Barr. So let's not pretend that by being the activist standing outside the building and railing against it, I've not made a choice to let Bill Barr take that seat, because you have. Utterly, completely, totally. As someone who was a public defender for five years, I completely respect people who say, well, I could never put someone in jail. I could never be the one making these very uncomfortable decisions. I truly respect that. But what you have said is we'll let other people do it. And the last 30 years of my career proved to me conclusively that it doesn't matter how hard you fight from the outside. And I did fight from the outside as an attorney and civil rights lawyer. It doesn't matter how hard you fight as a public defender when you don't have the levers of power. You will get individual justice here and there. Maybe you'll get a lot of individual justice, but you will watch the system get worse for 30 years because you gave up the levers of power. And that is, that is ultimately why I made the decision at 56 years of age to run for DA when I had never thought about running for office before. You know, I wanted to make systemic change, and it is undeniable that across the country it's what people want, but they need their technician on the inside of the institution for those people to get what it is that they want. Got it. Were there any misconceptions? You know, I have to imagine that um, that people ask you for things all the time or they ask you to do things in the name of justice that like literally you just don't have the power to do. Are there any misconceptions that we should clear up about like what a prosecutor can and cannot do? Sure. I mean, it, you know, this happens all the time. It, people of goodwill who feel strongly will say, well, I need you to release so-and-so from jail. I don't have the key. I don't run the jail. And decisions have to be made with the judge's approval. You know, often you're 40 years into litigation. All kinds of issues have been resolved. There is no time machine to go back and resolve those things. As a prosecutor, you're dealing with 
making one decision at a time within the, the range that they give you to make decisions. Our power moving forward is often kind of awesome. I say that because we have to decide, are we going to pursue the death penalty or not? Are we even going to charge this person or not? Is this a case we want to divert where someone will be held accountable but have no conviction whatsoever? Do we agree there should be a pardon, the complete elimination of a record? Do we agree there should be a commutation? We get to make decisions about what we recommend and what we charge and what we drop and what we don't all the time moving forward, meaning with open cases and new cases. But very often our hands are tied when it comes to things that happened in the past, or at least they're partially tied. So, you know, I mean, just during a period of pandemic, you'll get requests, let somebody out of jail right now. Um, okay, can't, you know, there has to be a motion. It has to be filed by an opposing attorney. We have to be in a position to respond to it. And then a judge has to rule. Other people think, for example, we control bail. We don't. All that we can do is we can make a recommendation as to what we think the bail should be. You know, I would love to completely eliminate cash bail in Philadelphia. It's something I've advocated for for years. But the problem is that we don't have the law that we need, as Washington, D.C. does, as New Jersey does, as Illinois and Kentucky do. We don't have the law that says, judges, you've got to stop using money. Uh, and I wish that we did. So sometimes people think that uh, if there is a bail, it is the one that I picked. And oh, no, indeed, that is, that's not how this works. So that does happen. But, you know, to the extent that we're able to shine some light on it, that's what we try to do. And how do we make sure that this stuff outlasts you? So like you came in, you're doing all this stuff. How do we make sure that this doesn't just go away if next go round you decide you don't want to run for another term? How does it stay? So I think there are a few answers to that. One answer is we have been recruiting the right people. We have hired uh, most of the attorneys in the office now, and we will continue to do that. Culture change is real within this office, but obviously, you know, we need to go to 2.0, which is not just that voters who are thrilled in many ways that they've been able to elect so many progressive prosecutors. We now have progressive prosecutors in 10 percent of the United States, some of the biggest jurisdictions. So even there, their influence is bigger than a random 10%. They're excited by that, but they need to realize they can do the same thing with their mayors. They can make sure their mayors are going to pick the right police commissioner, are going to push back against the police union. And they need to do that as well with judges. Judges are elected in most places. They're often elected by people who don't know a thing about who they are, and they are reelected. Sometimes universally, every single one is reelected every single year by people who don't know a thing. Data is available now. That will tell us some things. You really want to know whether Judge so-and-so in the last 10 years somehow magically gave black people twice as many years of incarceration? We can harvest that data now. You really want to know whether Judge so-and-so is always a hard hitter and everybody gets much more time than everybody else? That's something we can find out. You want to know whether Judge so-and-so always finds everybody guilty no matter what when they do trials in which the judge is a decision maker. Those are things we can find out. We can put together a track record. We can measure it. And it will be incredibly important for some of these judges who feel like they are unaccountable to see that there are records on the bench that are so terrible that they will get you voted out. And there are records in your career that are so weak that they will not get you elected. It's very important that we do that. You know, one of the biggest problems I believe we have is we need more outsiders to run. Some of the very best judges I have ever met, and my wife was a judge for nearly 20 years, so I'm very familiar with what goes on. Some of the, the very best judges we have ever had had to run against a mainstream machine party. They were insurgents. They were outsiders. They came with a whole lot of goodwill from having done good work, but they came with none of the usual connections. You know, a lot of what we have to do here 
is we have to find people who don't even know they need to run and get them to run. And then we have to use the tricks that are there for us to beat some of the mainstream people in the party. Let's not forget, these are the same folks who are perfectly happy electing people as we became the most incarcerated country in the world. They were down with all of that stuff. They do not have a good track record of putting the right people in. Uh, you know, and I can tell you, and this is something I've written about, but I can tell you that there are ways to beat the mainstream party. There are ways for outsiders and insurgents to get inside, even if they don't really feel like insiders. And I have to tell you right now, despite the fact that I am you know, the elected DA in, in Philly, and I got here with more votes than any DA in 20 years, I do not feel like an insider. Even being on the inside, I feel like a reluctant politician. But I feel like there are so many other people in this country who need to step up. They need to go after positions where they have expertise, where they feel that there's a mission to accomplish, and the mission is not their own ambition. It's not their own advancement to yet another position and yet another position. Those are the people we need to step up. Talk to us about why. I have some questions about the book. Why Why a book? Why now? Well, I'd love to tell you it's now, except it took a lot longer than I was hoping. Um, you've written a book or two, so you probably know what I'm talking about. I thought I was, I thought I was going to write this thing in six months. It took a year and a half, and so it's coming out much later. Why the book is, you know, in the course of 30 years of being in criminal justice, and even before I was a lawyer, when I served on a death penalty jury right out of college, there were these people I saw and these stories they were involved in that really stuck with me. And they were stories I would tell in the office or I would tell at dinner at home. And they were the same stories that I was telling when I was on a campaign trail for 98 days uh, before we won the election while I was simultaneously hearing stories back. And it, it was that storytelling that had a lot to do with the fact that we were successful in that election. You know, I believe that change really happens at the level of culture. You can write pretty much whatever law you want or elect whoever you want, but unless the people are with it, unless you see change at the level of culture, you're not going to accomplish much. So the same conversations I was having all those years became conversations that I wanted to have with people in general. You know, I was actually hoping to write something that was full of stories, conversational, not for lawyers, not full of statistics. That was really for, you know, retired people, people who've never been in a courthouse, smart high school students, you know, interested college students, some law students. That was kind of what I was hoping to do. And as I started to think back, even while I was campaigning, these are stories that tended to come out. So that, that's really what it was. I was hoping to contribute to a national conversation about criminal justice reform. And I've always believed that the best way to do it is to tell some real stories. I didn't know until reading your book that you that some of your work originally was around uh, not only around drug use, but around uh, populations who were impacted by HIV, hepatitis C. I'd love to know how those experiences shaped your perspective now that you're on the other side, right? You spent a career defending people, keeping them out of the system. And now some people would say you were the person sort of able to do some of that, but you're also sort of putting people in the system. But all these experiences that you write about in the book so thoughtfully about working in really marginalized communities on these issues that are like, that touch public health, that touch public safety, that touch community. Uh, how have they shaped the way that you have gone about your work today? Very early in my career, I came in contact with some of the most effective activists I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, people who were affiliated with ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And fairly quickly, because the uh, HIV and AIDS were spreading among certain populations, very quickly they got interested in stopping the spread of disease through injection. So they began the first guerrilla efforts 
to give out clean needles in Philadelphia. They were under threat of being prosecuted by an ambitious attorney general, which is the statewide prosecutor, because, frankly, they were saving lives and they're stopping the spread of disease in a way that was necessary. So they came to me as a criminal defense attorney, as someone they trusted to gear up, to get ready for the indictment that they thought was coming. And yet we find ourselves here. You know, some 25 years later, almost every city acknowledges the importance and significance of having clean needles available so that we can stop everyone from getting the disease. You know, the principles that applied when you were dealing with HIV and AIDS, the activist principles of pushing a reluctant government to do the research to find a cure or at least something that would make uh, people survive and would make their lives livable. We have seen that again. The problems that you see in terms of the spread of a virus are the same problems we've seen with governmental failure with this pandemic. It's the same problem we are seeing, in my opinion, with the spread of gun violence in the United States, which has been analyzed by a lot of criminologists that's spreading virally. It is not just getting shot. It is being around shootings that are happening and the traumatic impact that it has, the normalization of that level of violence, the deprivation that is happening in those neighborhoods that spreads it. So, you know, I see this all as a continuum. And in many ways, I see this all as the same story, which is about a government that does not protect its marginalized people. It either is violent against them directly, and I guess we're seeing that with Derek Chauvin, or it is indifferent to their safety and their security and allows these things to happen. You know, there is, there is actually uh, one story I talk about when I was stabbed, uh, very close to my law office about 15 years ago, couple people who were in addiction. Uh, I said something stupid to them, and I ended up getting slashed in the face with a knife. And the most important part of the story wasn't that, because that can happen. The most important part of the story for me was I was dressed down when it happened. It was a weekend, and I was in a part of town that has long been known in Philadelphia as the Gaberhood, which is where my office has been for 20 years. And uh, 15 years ago, the detectives who approached me were initially more interested in determining if I had some status that they viewed as marginalized. Was I cut in that alley because I was gay? Was I cut in that alley because I was looking for sex? Was I cut in that alley because maybe I was scoring drugs? Was I cut in that alley? That was really where they wanted to go. It was really very informative to me about how law enforcement has excluded its marginalized people, has failed to protect them, has spread crime that way, has endangered them. You know, I am a person of privilege in many, many ways. But looking through that lens, seeing the reaction, and then trying to imagine, well, what would it be like if I actually was a sex worker who was back there and I got stabbed by a John? What would it be like if I was not only of a status that they didn't accept, but I also was engaging in criminal activity? I think we know the answer. The answer is I would not be protected. I would not be comfortable coming forward. And what that really means is that I would be a pariah. I would be in a group of people who are unprotected and therefore cannot participate in criminal justice even to protect themselves. We have seen this for for a very long time. Serial killers find people who are in categories that are not protected by police, and then they go after them. That, those are the consequences. So um, all those events, all those stories, you know, the fascinating time I had when a couple of, of women who were the wives of police officers got arrested by their police officer husband simply because they were going through a divorce. And these police officers knew that they could gain leverage wow. for alimony by arresting their own 
wives with impunity, with no supervisory oversight, with no barrier for them to walk their own wives into, into the police station where they worked in handcuffs. It was affecting and important. You know, it, it conveyed in a much less serious way the complete vacuum of accountability that explains how Derek Chauvin stayed on the job all those years before he was able to kill George Floyd. It explained all of that. So I would say um, I might be the eyes on this in terms of these stories, but these stories really are for people. They are for people who are not in the system and to understand how the ideas of progressive prosecution that I've stood for and so many others have stood for even before I was elected, like Kim Fox and Aramis Ayala, where these ideas come from, the realities and the true stories that are their genesis. Well, this was great to have you here. Everybody check out his book for the people. And uh, Larry, wishing you the best in re-election and hope to see you back soon. DeRay, always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe.